You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news and Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, I'm Dr. John DeYard at LifeSpa.com, where we prove ancient medical wisdom with modern science. And I'm super excited here to uh, have Dr. Joe Mercola as our guest today. Uh, he is the author of two New York Times bestselling books, Effortless Healing and Fat as Fuel. He's for years and years and years, he's got the number one uh, natural health website uh, on the web. Um, if anybody is into natural medicine at all, they've heard of Dr. Joe Mercola, and we are super excited to have him here today talking about his new book, uh, Fat as Fuel. And no, also it's actually, about some actually Fat for Fuel. Fat, okay, sorry, Fat for Fuel. And, um, and also his newest research on EMF. So, uh, Dr. Mercola, thank you. Great to have you here. Well, great to be here, John. So um, my first question is, you know, we, we, we build this as you talked to me about there are two health strategies that everyone needs to know. So I'm curious if you can just give us a little intro of what those are and then we can dive in. Sure. Well, after, you know, I was motiv first motivated to write the book after reading Travis Christofferson's book, Tripping Over the Truth, The Metabolic Theory of Cancer. I had interviewed many of the people that he had uh, reviewed in the book, like Dr. Seafried and Dominic D'Agostino and others about keto the importance of ketogenic dieting, but I never really clicked until I read his book. And I read about 150 books and many hundreds of studies every year because one of the uh, healthy pra uh, lifestyle practices that I engage in is walking on the beach uh, in the sunshine barefoot with usually out <laughs> with just shorts and no shirt. And uh, that's for an hour and a half or two hours and I get to read. So I... I've read three books already this week. So, uh, and one of those books was Travis's, which was really one of the best books I read uh, a while ago. So it really captivated my interest in this. But I, so I, I dug deep on this and really tried to present a simple practical format that people can understand and follow and really help them, uh, capture the understanding of what mitochondria are, how they function, how they get damaged and how you can rebuild them. But, and part of that, of course, is cutting down on carbohydrates or at least going having a low carb, high healthy fat. And then that adjective is really important because any old fat won't work. If it's not healthy fat, you'll actually get worse, you know, like processed vegetable oils being the classic example. But if you have a low carb, high fat diet for a short time, then it, it's going to help most people. And why is that? Now, John, what percentage of the population is diabetic or pre-diabetic by conventional standards? Uh, most likely, um, the current, I think, is about a third of the population is pre-diabetic. Actually, it's 50%. That's, it now? that's what's accepted by conventional standards. But you know what? That's wrong. It's is, actually, that, is, that, is that diagnosis pre-diabetic or type 2 diabetic? Type 2. Type two okay. diabetes. So type two diabetes and pre-diabetes would be fifty percent wow. together. Okay. So not formally classified as type two diabetes. Now this of course excludes type one diabetes, which is uh, insulin deficiency syndrome, typically genetic, but not necessarily. Typically, an autoimmune disease is what it t tends to be, but um, a small percentage of those. So, but if you actually do ins uh, measure for insulin resistance with a 
uh, oral glucose tolerance and add an insulin test on that, you'll find that between 80 and 85% of the population of the United States is insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is the core of virtually every disease that we have in Western society, which would be heart disease, cancer, diabetes, obesity, overweight. So that's the core of it. And when you engage in a ketogenic program, you you have a very effective way of reversing the insulin resistance. And, and unless you reverse it, you're really treading water probably and going backwards if you're trying to treat a disease and not addressing the core foundational issue, which, of course, is the classic strategy that conventional medicine uses. And even beyond that is they accelerate the process by giving patients with type 2 diabetes insulin, which should be reprehensible criminal malpractice because they are absolutely not doing anything to treat the foundational cause of the disease and actually accelerating death. By right. giving them insulin. So anyway, it's a tangent, but it's an important one to understand yeah. that if you're in this 80% of the population, which is most everyone in the country, and probably the majority of people listening to this, then you need to engage in a behavior that's going to reverse that insulin resistance. And one of the most effective strategies is a simply this low-carb, high-quality fat diet. And it's not forever. And this is a mistake that I made when I was initially researching the book. Because you do not, this, if you engage in a low carb, high fat diet for long term, you will get sick and you will suffer health consequences. This is not a long term strategy. That's so good to hear because that was my concern when I read mm-hmm. the book. I was like, this sounds really good. You know, uh, you know, we all have to reset our ability to burn fat because we've overshot the sugar runway, the carbohydrate runway. Mm-hmm. There's no question about that. In nature, when you look at the natural cycles of feast and famine, we have feast mm-hmm. in the fall and famine in the spring. You know, and this is what we look at it from an Ayurvedic perspective is we naturally go into ketosis, but not by eating more fat, just by sort of not eating, um, mm-hmm. sort of going into either going into fasting, uh, you know, a low, it's actually a low fat, low caloric time of the year that forces natural ketogenic. So I'm wondering, the difference between doing it that way, which is sort of a ancestral traditional way to do it versus doing the high fat diet, which really, when you look at, you know, when we look at ancestral diets, I'm having a hard time finding a population that actually did that. So help me out there. Well, sure. Um, the practical reality, I, I, I agree. And, and what I was getting to, but hadn't gotten there yet was that after I finished publishing the book, the conclusion I reached is that clearly the most effective and most powerful metabolic intervention I'm aware of is fasting. And I'm not talking about daily intermittent fasting, which I think is a good strategy to lead up to a complete a multiple day water fast and basically by intermittent fasting, having a restricted time of eating, uh, starting maybe at uh, limiting it to eight hours and then working down to four hours. So you're only eating four hours a day. Uh, and if you do that for a month, then you could really easily make the transition into a multiple day water fast. So I'm, I'm convinced that that, Would that be enough to do reset fat burning, though, if you just did that? It, I mean, it, it could for some people, but for most people okay. it's not because they're metabolically injured and damaged and they need a lot more cycles of that. So that doesn't mean, okay, just don't do it. Just got to do it multiple times. Got Even it. though I, I don't, I'm not metabolically damaged and I'm not insulin resistant, I still 
to this day, every month, fast for five days, because I think it's one of the most powerful strategies you can do. And not just for reversing insulin resistance, because I am in no way insulin resistant. I'm the exact opposite. I'm very insulin sensitive. But what it does, and one of the most important things that, that we can do in our body, if we're interested in improving our lifespan and extending it to be healthy, is to remove damaged cells from our bodies. These types of cells are called senescent cells. And a senescent cell, maybe someone has heard of it, but they don't know what it means. It's essentially a cell that's hanging around and is damaged. It has lost the ability to duplicate itself. And this is usually due from old age or massive uh, damage from oxidative stresses that we're exposed to in the environment. So most of the times for the average person, these senescent cells just clog up the system and they're essentially garbage and they make it very difficult to uh, stay healthy. So fasting upregulates a process that is called autophagy. Auto meaning self and phage, phage meaning eating. So you eat yourself and you eat this damaged tissues. And the beautiful thing about that, when you take out the garbage and clear out these senescent cells, then uh, fasting also stimulates another process, which is improving your stem cells so that you regenerate the new cells. So that's why I'm the biggest fan of fasting. So hopefully that clears that up. But I want to go back to the fat issue, which is a concern. And that was, I want to address that. And that, that research won the Nobel Prize this year, right? Uh, in the uh, Well, the Nobel the Prize for, for medicine, at least I understand it was a circadian rhythm. There were three. Yeah, but it was a, but in, in chemistry, it was actually for fasting and, and uh, autophagy. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Well, autophagy might have been. Yes, I, I just yeah, not. It was. And it was based on this research on fasting, which is like. I know, and I couldn't agree more. My first health book that I read when I was 18 years old was The Miracle of Fasting by Paul Bragg. So, yeah, um, and then he was, a, he was an early adopter. <laughs> oh, my God. No doubt. No doubt about it. So tell me more. So we know fasting. So minimal amount of fasting you need to reset and for how long? Well, we could, most people aren't going to be able to pull off five days a month. You, you no. know that, right? So yeah, what do yeah. you suggest? Well, well, let me just finish that and then we'll go on to the next step. The, the, that most of the improvement, I mean, so, so people say I can't fast for five days, so I'll do one or two days. Well, that's not bad, but it's not, you're not going to get the benefit. You really don't start getting these metabolic changes until day three. So day four and five is when you really reap the benefits and you start clearing out, taking out the garbage. So, but that's, you know, you address the issue that the, that's the, the elephant in the room, and which is compliance to this strategy. This is going to be very low. And almost everyone is very fearful of doing fasting, thinking they're going to go into starvation mode and cause problems, and they're going to be hungry like crazy. And uh, if you engage in the process by starting the working up to a four, uh, essentially a 20-hour daily intermittent fast where you're not eating food for 20 hours, and you do that for a month, you will likely be able to burn fat very effectively unless you're really metabolically damaged. Uh, and then the experience with most people going to multiple day water fast is on day two, they become very hungry. But when you do it this way, your, your metabolic systems are so activated that you don't uh, experience that hunger. And instead, you experience a lack of hunger and a, and a massive increase in mental clarity. So if you've got some projects you want to do and you need to save some money and need more time because fasting is not only free, it's better than free because you're not buying food. You're not making time to prepare the food. You're not eating the food. You're not cleaning up the mess afterwards. So you're saving hours a day and you are doing probably one of the most powerful 
uh, changes you can for your body is, is doing that. So if that's not enough motivation, that's fine. And I'm sure many people are still going to be reluctant to do it. Well, then you get to the issue is, well, then how else are you going to do it? Well, then you, that, and then I think the low-carb, high-fat diet is, is appropriate because – most of us are just have not, you know, we've lost the ability to uh, essentially uh, have metabolic flexibility and burn either fat or carbohydrates. Most of us are just burning carbs. Not you, but, you know, most of the people in the U.S., not you or I, but that's the case. And so you've got to initiate some strategy. And, I, you know, I'm not a and the last time I interviewed you, you know, we discussed the, the grains and the breads and things. And I'm not opposed to that. I just think it needs to be done in moderation and in in people who are already fat adapted. So if you're fat adapted, I think you need to have some healthy carbohydrates. Vegetables, I would think, would be better than grains. Uh, fruits, also great. And and I have there are there are two days a week where I, I consume about 150 grams of, of carbohydrate. Uh, usually sweet potatoes and fruit, uh, in addition to my normal vegetables, of course. So how long um, would it take for someone? Because we talked about, you talked about how this is not a long-term diet. So for the oh, average no. person. Well, that's a great home. question. How long does it take from a stat, person who's consuming the standard American diet, has lost the ability to, to the metabolic flexibility to burn fat for fuel, to regain that ability. It depends. If you're a healthy athlete and young, it could be as little as a week or less. If you're someone who's elderly and maybe 100 or 200 pounds overweight and really metabolically damaged, it could take months. So it really depends. And so how do you, how, do you, how would someone measure? You're talking, you're talking that's about what I was going to say. So how do you know? Right. So how do you know? When I wrote the book, I was a little po up Bit well, you know when your body regains the metabolic flexibility because you start creating uh, a type of fat called ketones, which is a very short-chain fat that uh, is water-soluble, made by the liver, and circulates in your blood readily and, interestingly, passes the blood-brain barrier. It doesn't need a transport system so that you can feed your brain on ketones. So you can actually measure these in your breath, your urine, and your blood. The blood is the most accurate but also the most expensive. They're about $4 a stick. Urine is the cheapest, and I was opposed to them, but I've I've reconsidered uh, that, and I think that's the, probably the best strategy. For less than ten dollars, you can get a hundred tests to test your urine to see if there, you can change the color on that strip. And if you've got any color in there, you're burning some ketones. And the deeper the color, the darker it is, the more ketones you have. Now that's only measuring acetoacetate, which is one of the three ketones, but it's a simple, easy way to do that. You can pee on the stick in the morning and see what you're doing, and then uh, you know. Do it as long as it takes. Uh, usually you'll start losing weight and maybe not even weight initially. You'll start losing girth. Your tip, most of us, of course, our waist circumference is far too large. So you'll start getting thinner, even though you may weigh the same because you're losing fat and gaining muscle. And what about blood sugar measurements? Blood sugar measurements are nice. They're not necessary. If you're an obsessive compulsive like me, then I think it's useful. If you're diabetic, <coughs> of course. <coughs> That's something you're going to want to be particularly careful of. And you want to, if you are a diabetic, and as we said, 80% of the people watching this either are or have prediabetes. But if you're a diabetic diagnosed and are taking some type of medication, then you want to do this very carefully, ideally with assistance of a healthcare professional. But you theoretically could do it yourself if, you, you know, you just may have to monitor your sugars very carefully and make sure that you low, continue to lower your medication until you're off of it completely. Because fasting, as I'm sure you're aware, John, is indeed 100%, not 98, not 99, not 99.99, is 100% cure for type 2 diabetes, 100% cure. I mean, if, if it's truly type 2 diabetes, that is the way to cure it. 
uh, at least I'm convinced, and so is Jason Fung, who is a friend and uh, has written a book, The Diabetic Code, which will be published in January, uh, and really goes into great extension of that. And his earlier book, The Complete Guide to Fasting, is a marvelous resource for those who are interested in fasting. So when you look at blood sugars real quick, how low do they need to go, fasting glucose, for your, for you to think to consider that they are completely fat adapted? Reset. Well, I like to see them in the 80s for sure, under 90. Uh, okay. If you get really insulin sensitive and you do the fast, I mean, your blood sugar can go down to 40s, 30s, even 20s. I've had mine in the, in the low 40s before. But I know many, some of my friends who are in the 20s even. So, and they're safe? not symptomatic. Yeah, it's totally safe because, you know, they're, 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 they're healthy. They're not, they're, they didn't get it there by taking extra insulin. Now, if you, if you had a type 2 diabetic who wasn't metabolically adapted and got it there, they probably would die. There's no question because you can go down that low and die. But if your, if your system is adapted and you have other fuel sources and you're able to burn ketones for fuel, essentially, then it's not an issue. You, you need a certain level of sugar, but your body has this capacity to make it. It's called gluconeogenesis, and your liver actually takes fuel, typically uh, fat uh, uh, or proteins or uh, backbones like uh, glycerol to, to convert it to uh, ketones, not uh, ketones, to carbohydrates, and uh, it's called hepatic gluconeogenesis. So your body some- can make it. So there are some some side effects of doing this, and I read some of the studies talk about how mm-hmm. if you if you go on a high fat low protein or low carb diet, you end up having sometimes hypothyroid issues. Um, sometimes the ability to actually then utilize sugar in an efficient manner becomes sort of compromised, where you are now fat adapted, but you lose sugar, the ability to handle sugar. So when you go back to a regular diet, you have higher blood sugars. Have you? seen any of that or heard any of that? Well, as I alluded to earlier, if you do it for too long, you're going to run into problems. And that could be, you know, once you exceed, once you've reached the level of ketosis, then you need to integrate back in healthy carbohydrates because your body needs them. You need it to build a healthy microbiome. Uh, so if you go on too long, then it's, then it's definitely an issue. The other component is, yeah, I don't know, I haven't, don't know which studies you're referring to, but uh, many of these studies are done with complete ignorance of what a healthy diet is. So they're putting people on high fat diets and, and the f- high fat is like, uh, corn oil or soy oil. You know, I mean, yeah. it's like, yeah, it doesn't work. You know, you, you are metabolically clogging up the system when you, when you eat deranged foods that highly processed foods and damage that your system was never designed to have. But if you're eating healthy fats, you know, nutrient dense, high quality, preferably organic, locally grown and fresh, uh, you're far less likely to run into any complications, especially if you shift into adding back the healthy carbohydrates when you're fat adapted. Is this the reason why, you know, the most recent studies put out by the American Heart Association condemning saturated fats, you know, is that the, what's, help us understand why, you know, the, the American Heart Association condemns a saturated fat diet. Uh, I totally agree with you that saturated fats are fine, processed, cooked vegetables well, are we, we, poison. We could- we could spend the next half hour discussing that, especially in light of the fact that yesterday the president of the American Heart Association developed a heart attack. He was 52 years old. Um, they don't know what they're doing. They have, yeah. they are clueless. So, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a great question, but I really wanted to talk about EMFs and okay. there's a, there's a lot of good justification for it. And I've written tons of articles on this and the saturated fat myth. And again, the most of those studies that look at that, that, that when they're giving them a high, 
saturated fat diet, a lot of the fat that's in there is are these high omega-6 processed vegetable oils that go with yeah. it or trans fat. So that you have to look at the details in the study and it's just really flawed. And there's a lot of, there's a, at least three or four recent meta-analysis that debunk those things. So, so one last thing on, before we move on to the next topic, um, the idea, and I'm a big fan of seasonal eating and understanding mm-hmm. that the microbes change from, in the soil from season to season, they change in our gut from season to season. Uh, we know that ancestrally people would fast in the spring. We know amylase, an enzyme that, is, that uh, helps us digest starches, increases in our body in the fall and decreases in the spring and the summer, suggesting that we should be feasting around this time, thus the Thanksgiving time of the year, mm-hmm. and then fasting when there's no food. What do you think about having a you know fat adapting once a year during the spring when it is sort of you know in a circadian way what we actually should be doing? Versus doing it all the time. Well, you know, my current strategy is, you know, I tend to be OCD, obsessive compulsive. So I think that may be healthier. I don't know. But, you know, I have recently became enamored with this strategy. And that's maybe something I'll shift to. But I think most people need to do a number of rounds because we have. Listen, I'm in my approaching my mid 60s. I've never done fasting before. Never. So if I had been doing it my entire life, then yes, that probably may be a more optimal strategy, but I've never done it. So I've got a lot of catch-up work to do. I've got a lot of damaged cells I really need to activate, my bone marrow, my, and improve my stem cells. So, you know, I'm probably going to do it for a year or so before I start thinking about doing it less frequently. So what you're saying is, is, is that most of us need medicinal intervention, fasting being the safest and most effective. And once yeah. you reset... And the least expensive. Fast, Right. Yeah, exactly. Then you can go to doing it more seasonally, but you have to look at your ability to burn fat because metabolically, you know, that's taking most of us, as you said, the CDC just released a new stats. 40%. That's two fifths of the population of the United States. It's not overweight. They're obese, obese. Obese. We're looking at probably close to 80% of the country is overweight. So yeah, I mean, you're talking about an idealized scenario. If everyone was healthy in the right way and they've been doing this for a lot, great. But that's not the case in the United States. We've been exposed to all. And then you add on top of that, you have industrial poisons that have been created in the last last century that we have to detoxify. So it is a massive problem. And then we've got the EMF issue, which is another challenge. It's like we're being hit by all sides. It's like... We've got to bring out the heavy artillery, and the heaviest artillery I know is fasting. Yeah. Before we go there, EMFs, you have to tell me why proteins are not healthy, because this is a new thing for a lot of people, people eating paleo, eating you know, bacon and, and meat for sure. breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I think that's a very, very important difference that you it make. Is. So yeah, talk to me about it's, that. It's a really key distinction. It's primarily, and then Dr. Rod Rosell is the one that helped me initially understand and appreciate this, but there's a really important, profoundly important metabolic pathway called mTOR, right. which stands for mechanistic target of rapamycin, rapamycin being an anti-cancer drug, and actually a very effective anti-cancer drug. And the reason why it works is because it shuts down and suppresses this pathway, but you can do it for free with no side effects by limiting your protein. So uh, when you activate uh, mTOR, and it's not, it's, it's very similar to insulin in many ways, is that you do never really want to chronically activate mTOR because it's just like you never want to chronically activate insulin. Now, does that mean there's never a time place or for activation? No, because again, when you have, when you cycle back in, like I 
like I discussed in the book, cyclical ketogenesis. When you cycle back into carbs, then you cycle back in extra protein. So for the initial phase or in fasting, obviously, you're having very low protein levels or relatively low. I'm talking, you know, I, I'm probably in the 50 grams of protein. So, you know, and most people are over 100, 150 grams. Some bodybuilders are doing two, 300 grams of proteins. And that's, in my view, more dangerous than excess carbohydrates because you, it's going to damage your kidneys. It's extra nitrogen stores and it's just a massive stress on your system but you still need protein like two days a week i'll have a lot of extra protein and maybe go up to 100 grams of protein when I, and i do this when i'm strengthening training because it's an anabolic stimulus that you want to activate to make sure you have good muscle mass as as you're aging but didn't in your book you talked about there was a study where you know a a low protein diet inhibited the mTOR but also so did a high, high carbohydrate diet um, did the same thing. So couldn't you get similar benefits just by not eating fat, having a low fat diet and a high carbon diet? If it was all plant based, could you actually, you know, well, so have that was that would certainly be a better strategy. It depends on type of plants. Now, if you were if you were if they were low starchy carbohydrate plants most of the time, then I think there's no question you could do it. In fact, that's most, mostly my diet. But if you're having a lot of sweet potatoes and other high carb and a lot of grains, then I, I would, my guess is it would be, it would depend. And you'd have to, only way to do it is you'd have to measure and analyze it and see what your blood sugars are running because your body doesn't lie. You have to check it. What's your fasting blood sugar? You know, right. what is your postprandial blood sugar? Right. And then you check and then you can see if you can, if your body can tolerate it, it was designed for that. Because it's so confusing for people because you can see their studies show a high carbohydrate. You know, the Dean Ornish diet is actually very effective. Low carbs are very effective. High fats have, you know, very effective. And then there's low fat diets that are very effective. You know, and there's high protein and low protein diets that are mm -hmm. very, that have been proven. So, so at the end of the day, once you reset, then where do you go? I mean, I suggest people look at what's seasonal and change with the seasons. You get your high protein and the fat in the winter and, you're low fat in the, summer, in the spring and you're high carb in the summer. We make seasonal transitions and we get back to getting the right bugs in the right time of the year in our gut and make those transitions. But I'm curious to know what you think about, about at the end of the day, you're fat adapted, your blood sugar is back into balance. What do people eat? Well, I think variety is a key. And if you're in integrating the seasonal variation that you suggest, that's fine. Uh, there's less seasonal variation where I live because I live in Florida. So I'm, I'm still yeah. picking mulberries today, you know, and it's the yeah. right of the week before Thanksgiving. So, and I've got acerola cherries that I'm going to be picking until January. So, wow. uh, yeah. Uh, it depends. So it depends, really. There's all these other variables. But I, I think ultimately the best thing is to listen to your body. And if you're confused, then get some objective laboratory data, start measuring ketones, measure your blood sugar, uh, do some other laboratory analysis and figure it out. And obviously analyze how you're doing it and chart it and, and see if you can make a, some sense out of it. But it's pretty straightforward. It's not it's not rocket science, essentially. Right. And the centenarian people who live over 100, they eat about 10 percent of their diet as animal protein, 90 percent plant based. Where do you stand on that ratio between plant proteins and animal proteins? I think it's fine. Mine, mine probably is lower. Uh, I, I about only 10% of my protein is, is 10% of my calories are proteins, let alone plant animal based. Right. Uh, so, but no, I, I, no, actually I do have some animal fat. So like I have, I'll have butter. So it's probably around that range. I think that's probably a good yeah. strategy. And it's something yeah. that I, I, if, if you just apply these principles, it's something that you naturally come to. You don't have to measure it out or figure it out. I mean, I, I have, very low proteins, typically 
uh, about three ounces a day of, of some type of animal protein, either shrimp or sardines uh, or some, uh, some pasture-raised meat. But three ounces, we're not talking, you know, a pound would last almost a week. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Okay, thank you so much for that. Talk to me about EMFs. I know you're, you've got, you're writing a new book about that. Is that true? Yes, I am. It's going to be called the EMF Extinction or maybe nice. the Extinction Event. Uh, it probably won't be out <clears throat> for over a year, but there's no reason to not let people be aware that this is a serious issue because just as I think water fasting, uh, multiple day water fasting is one of the most powerful things they should do and really would encourage them to seriously integrate that into their lifestyle. I think the CMF is a big issue, but I just had personal curiosity just occurred to me. How are you doing water fasting or have you yeah, done it? I do. I've, I've, you know, what's I've, your strategy? Um, definitely at least on average, almost every day, 13 hours between supper and breakfast. I always try to keep that, you know, you know, mm -hmm. uh, as long as possible. As, as, and then, for years and years and years, I fasted once a week. Um, I've, you know, intermittently do a longer fast, three to five days. I did a four-day fast about three, four weeks ago, three weeks ago, um, which was great because I was doing that and I was reading your book. So I did use that to kind of kick into <laughs> using some of your principles, which I thought was really great. Um, and I've done about, oh, three or four weeks of what you say in your book. And I feel like I'm ready to ready to transition out of that, which is why I was so happy to hear you say this is short term because oh, um, so, yes, yes. I, I was ready. I was ready. And, and I think, uh, but I've been fasting on and off my entire life and now definitely look at a really austere springtime diet. And this time of year sort of, you know, was a little uh, against the grain of what I was, what I would like to do, which is like pig out and feast mm -hmm. during this time of the year. And, but because I was reading your book and I was so fascinated, I gave it a go. Um, but I think in the spring is when I would really look at doing multiple longer day fasts and see okay. if I can reset that one time of the year. And then from there, see if I can really follow the seasons and stay fat adapted throughout the year and have some of those carbs and those grains without going into full blown, you know, pre-diabetes. Well, good. Yeah, I doubt if you're ever going to get pre-diabetes. Uh, just not in your, the, your cards. I mean, you could theoretically get it, but it's not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, so, or, or just keep the blood sugars low while you're having some of those seasonal grains. As you know, in my book, yeah. we talk about healthy grains and not refined foods. And, and if we do that right and seasonally, we, uh, we should be able to tolerate them because we've been eating them for, you know, millions of years, not just 10,000. Um, so it's hard for me to say, oh, grains are bad when we have, you know, millions of years of, of ancestral eating of them. So I'm trying to find it had to be a seasonal thing that gave yeah. us a break from them. And then sure. we were able to then go back and do it safely. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think for someone like you who's embracing that concept, then it would probably make sense to, to pretty carefully monitor your blood sugars. It's a simple test. It only costs like a quarter. And you can see what you're doing in the morning. And if, you, and if your fasting blood sugar starts rising over 90 or 100, then you know it's probably not a good strategy because there are right. just – I think this is incontrovertible evidence that, you know, elevated blood sugars are pernicious to your health on a regular basis. Now, short term, no problem, but chronically, you're just asking for trouble. So whatever it is, I mean, and, you know, you've seen this and you've seen a lot of elite athletes do this. I mean, they're chronic endurance exercises. I mean, world champions even. And, you know, they're developing type two diabetes and running 100 miles a week, 150 miles. I mean, it's crazy. It's not like that there's, they're an exercise efficiency, but they, they just, 
metabolically they're deranged. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating research and it's, uh, it's so good to hear because the, you know, hear, you know, a way to be ketogenic without the dangers and without the risk because, um, and that's really refreshing to see two things. One, that the short term in your book and also that uh, the proteins needed to be a lot lower. And I think those are refreshing concepts for folks that I really appreciate. So talk about EMFs. What are we, what are we, uh, well, in, what, what's the risk? My guess is uh, that almost everyone watching this, probably including you, are sort of arrogantly ignorant like I was <laughs> about this. I have written about EMFs for 10, 20 years, you know, in my newsletter, warning people to be concerned about it and knowing that the damage that it is essentially induced by non-thermal effects, but not having any understanding of what the heck that meant. So it's just non-thermal, just keep your distance low. And then, you know, we gradually be exposed to this, especially someone like me who's a technophile. And, you know, I started my first computer programming class in 1968 Really, it was an early adopter online. Started my website 20 years ago, uh, and you know, so I, I, I love technology. I'm a, te a gadget freak, you know. So it's and most of the gadgets are wi wireless. So you just yeah. gradually become more and more exposed to it, and say, "Oh, I'm healthy. I'm eating good. I'm exercising. What do I have to worry about?" It. Well, I'll tell you, nothing could be further from the truth. Biology doesn't care who you are, what you know, how much money you have. It doesn't matter. You are going to get damaged. And how does it damage you? John, interestingly, most everyone watching this, including you, understands the danger that ionizing radiation has, x-rays, right? We know that. If, and, and how does it cause the damage? There's a, it's a higher energy radiation. It's enough energy that it actually can directly break single and double-stranded DNA. Uh, but interestingly, most people aren't aware, including scientists, that the damage that ionizing radiation causes is not directly related to the power in the energy itself, but from secondary free radicals that cause oxidative damage. So that okay. causes far more DNA double-stranded, single-stranded breaks. And when you compare radio frequencies like Wi-Fi and your cell phone signals to this ionizing radiation, they actually cause more uh, more um, oxidative damage than ionizing radiation. So if you're concerned about x-rays, you should be very concerned about your cell phone because even though there's not enough energy in that in those frequencies to cause it directly, it causes it indirectly through oxidative damage. So, now you probably are wondering, well, then why aren't our federal regulatory agencies protecting us? Why is I'm the not wondering that. You're, you're not? Well, no. I mean, obviously there's corruption, but some people might they, be. they never do, you know. Yeah, well, they, ostensibly they, 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 that, that is their charter. And, uh, we have now, you know, the, everybody wants to. So my daughter, I went to, this, went to the iStore, I got at AT&T store the other day, and she's looking at the iPhone watch and going, Daddy, I, I just... I'm like, there's no way I'm putting a, a satellite receiver on your wrist that you're carrying around all day long. There's just no way that's happening. But people well, think it's safe. It, it is, but it's rel that's a relatively minor difference than what most every – how old is your daughter? She's 14. Okay, 14. It's a little bit older than I think this, but she's right in that age group. The younger ones, like for, say 14 down to six or something, that young yeah. age group, right? So many of them, a high percentage, I suspect the majority of them either have a tablet or a cell phone. 
Oh gosh, yeah. That, that they are going to bed with that night, and the damn thing is not in airplane mode. They're right. sleeping with it under their pillow. Right. We are crippling, prematurely killing our future generation. There's no doubt in my mind. So yeah, is it worse on your wrist with a cell phone? Of course, but it's not much different than having a cell phone next under your pillow at night. It's almost the same that's, thing. Yeah, that's unacceptable behavior in our house. They, if they do that, they don't put their cell phone away in the other room. They lose their phone for 24 hours. Well, that is, hour a, that is a, a tremendous example of phenomenal parenting. So kudos to you. But I can assure you with the highest degree of confidence that virtually no other parents are doing that, that they yes. are unaware of this. And this is the reason why we're having this discussion. So how the heck does, did this happen? Assuming that the federal regulatory agencies were not conflicted and were not corrupted by industry, um, we know that's not the case. They are. But what they've adopted and believed to be true is adopted these safety standards that are essentially based on thermal energy. In other words, well, let's get to radio frequencies. They've ref- the, the microwaves, which is sort of the basis of almost all 21st century communication, microwave technology, was developed around World War II for radar. That was the first commercial application. And those are the frequencies that's not only that they heat food, that eventually the microwave ovens were developed from that, but that's the same frequencies that our cell phones now use. <clears throat> it's somewhere from about two to four gigahertz. And so they, they, that since it was a microwave oven, you know, heating food, they thought that almost all the damage, including the microwave oven standards, are based on this thermal reaction, the ability to heat the tissue. So, yes, if you're exposed to high amounts of microwaves and it heats your tissue, you can cook and fry yourself, no question. But that's not how the the vast majority of the damage happens. It happens for these non-thermal mechanisms that I mentioned earlier. And, and for anyone who's interested in this, because we're not going to have time to go into great details, but the yeah. I believe this researcher, Martin Paul, P-A-L-L, who mm-hmm. is – have you heard of him before? No. Okay. But all you have to do is type his name, Martin Paul, in YouTube and type in EMF, and you'll bring up about a dozen lectures he's given on this topic that go into great detail that are based on primarily a lot of the research he's published, uh, a seminal one being in 2013, four years ago, where he identified what what is believed to be the mechanism of, of how EMFs damage our biology. Essentially compiled two dozen studies that looked, explored the use of calcium channel blockers, uh, and on in vitro and uh, animal studies. And when they exposed these cell cultures or animals to EMFs and they were on calcium channels, they essentially abolished the damage from the EMFs. That, which is incredible. So he developed this theory to help people understand. And he has a degree in physics and, in biology and he's out on the west coast and he, he developed the mechanism to, to show that the sensitivity of these voltage gated calcium channels which respond to the wi-fi signals and pretty much all the electromagnetic frequencies um, essentially when they're activated through through frequencies they allow calcium which is typically really high on the outside of a cell to dribble into the inside of the cell, and and it's a really important biological signaling molecule. Well, the problem is when you activate it too rigorously, like you do with, with EMFs, then you have too much calcium comes in, which then stimulates the production of excess nitric oxide, combining with perioxynitrate, and that forms hydroxyl free radicals and 
massively increase oxidative stress, causing damage to mitochondria, cell membranes, proteins, and DNA, busting up so, the single and double-stranded breaks. So what you're saying is this is a global systemic effect. So depending on how you're mm -hmm. genetically wired to break down, you will. So they're not going to say, oh, EMFs cause brain cancer or breast cancer. They're not going to find the same problem in every one, which is why it's sort of this insidious kind mm -hmm. of accumulating degenerative experience that nobody's been able to put their finger on except well, what you're doing. Well, it's not me. I'm just helping collate co the literature and help people understand it. I, that I am not a researcher in this. I'm just compiling the data. So uh, these voltage-gated calcium channels are embedded in your cell membranes, and the density of these uh, channels are related to the types of tissue. So the highest density is in the brain. Okay. Uh, second would be the nervous tissue in your heart, the pacemaker nodes. Uh, and the side effect of that is, you know, how many people you know have arrhythmias? Well, a good portion of that could be related to EMF exposure. And if you eliminate the EMF exposure, the arrhythmias disappear magically. So they affect the brain. They contribute to Alzheimer's, neuropsychiatric issues like depression, anxiety, uh, and autism, which is one of the reasons I call the that book the EMF extinction because if you've, you're killing off 50% of the population with autism prematurely and 50% or more of the children growing up are autistic and the people in the middle are impaired by the next tissue, which is your reproductive tissue, we, we, we've we lost 50% of our reproductive ability. I mean, it is fertility rates are down 50%. That's what they are right now. And they're only wow. getting worse. So you, we're losing the ability to reproduce as a species, and we're killing them off on both sides. That's an extinction event, unless we're careful. Uh, so it's a big issue. But let me get back to these voltage-gated calcium channels. I told you the tissues that they're more, more densely located. But the sensitivity of these receptors compared to the charged particles inside and outside the cell, which the safety standards are based on because the charged particles vibrating is what causes microwave to heat your food. Well, those calcium channel receptors are 7 million times, 7 million times more sensitive than the charged particles are. That means that the safety standards are established by the federal regulatory commissions, not only in the United States, but throughout the world, are off by a factor of 7 million. 7 million, John. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. So you think you're doing a good job by you know, following the instructions because even with it being off by 7 million, they still warn you not to ever hold the phone to your head. And we've got guys like Ted Kennedy and more recently, John McCain, who have glioblastomas, which are related to cell phone use. And there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of others who are coming down with these, type, these types of cancers. Yeah, my dad died of a glioblastoma. He never had a cell phone, but, but you know, I, I, I totally get it. So what, what should people do? They obviously, you have a cell phone, right? I'm sure you still have one. I have a cell phone. I'll, I, I still have one. That is true. Um, it's not in this room. And I'll tell you why. It doesn't matter. Um, because I've got a strategy, John, that will improve the battery life of everyone's cell phone who's watching by tenfold. In other words, you only have to charge your phone once a week. Nice. What do you, you do? You like that strategy? You put it in it. airplane. You put it in airplane mode unless you need it. <laughs> oh, nice. Super airplane easy. mode all the time. You should never, 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 unless you've got some dire emergency, put a cell phone on your body unless it's in airplane mode. That is, that's an absolute no-no. Absolute. 
Do not do what if, it. What if someone's trying to call you? Well, then put it in your uh, suit, ba- uh, briefcase, your backpack, or put it on a right. table somewhere, away off for your body. And that's how you know moms carry their phone with them. They're glued to it all the day because their kids are going to call. What if they get yeah, sick? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, when we were kids. Nobody knew where you were, what you were doing ever. But nowadays, you know, moms are are and dads too are are, are really connected to their kids. They're communicating all the time. You know, all right, all right, I, I love the strategy, but I don't know how practical it is for a lot of moms with kids. Well, once you understand, well, you got to find something else. Maybe get a walkie-talkie or something. You know, there's 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 <laughs> yeah, always yeah. ways to be creative depending on your individual circumstances. But the reality is, you have to understand the danger. Now, most everyone watching this never had a cell phone bef- this century. Maybe there's a few people. Maybe a few percent who've had one between 1995 and the year 2000. I don't know. When did you get your first cell phone? Uh, I don't know. It was pretty early on, though. Well, before no, in the last century. Early. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that yeah, you're, you're unusual. Most people did not. They they got it this century, but very few, virtually no one before 1995. So we're we're talking 20 years, John. That's yeah. that's a, a drop in the bucket. 20 years. But if we go back a hundred years to say World War One, the end of World War One. And we find out, ask the question, how much of this, these Wi-Fi signals were available or around it? You know, because part of both of our strategies is to replicate ancestral practices, to live in environments and lifestyles that our ancestors did, right? right. So wouldn't it be wise to live in a lifestyle that sort of reproduced the exposure we had 100 years ago? Would you think that would be a rational approach? Sure, absolutely. Okay. All right, so let's compare the amount of Wi-Fi radiation at the frequencies of your cell phone at 1917 that were naturally available in the environment to the, to the amount that they are present today. How much do you think it's increased from 1917 to 2017? A thousand times. A thousand times. Would you, would you, would you think a hundred thousand times? No. That much, huh? No. Would you think a million? All right, you got to tell me now what? Would you think a billion, John? No yeah, no way. At a billion, you're just you're just incredible. It has increased one billion billion times, ten to the eighteenth, ten to with eighteen zeros behind it, with no time to adapt. Well. We've Evolution essentially evolution. 20 years. Uh, you know, yeah. the increase wasn't as dramatic from 20 years ago to now because we've obviously had other frequencies in there. But but from 100 years, essentially no time. You're right. From an evolutionary perspective, no time. 10 yeah. to the 18th. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. You had no virtually. I've asked that question to thousands and thousands of people and no one has ever come even close to answering that. Who would ever think that it would be that yeah, high? It is. It's it, it's just crazy. So it, it you know we we uh, are both aware of sitting is the new smoking, but I've got the new one for you. Cell phones are the new cigarettes, and yeah. like cigarettes, you smoke one, you smoke a pack for a, you know a day, for a week, a month, a year. Are you going to suffer? No. Most likely, no noticeable damage. Same thing with cell phones. It takes a while. It's chronic exposure. This is a chronic 
stress to your body. Every time you're exposed to this radiation, you are creating massive amounts of excess oxidative stressors inside your cells and more importantly, your mitochondria, which are dying prematurely, contributing to, you know, one of the premises of my book, Fat for Fuel, is mitochondrial dysfunction. And the way you improve it, upregulate it, is, is by having this ketogenic approach and then cyclical ketogenesis, water, uh, multiple day water fast, but essentially burning fat for fuel, having that ability because you lower oxidative stress and you improve mitochondrial function. Well, what's even a more pernicious threat is this continuous EMF exposure. So hopefully I've alarmed you and most of the your people that are listening. Are you, are you appropriately alarmed now <laughs> concerned? <laughs> You know, I've always been aware, never to the extent that you're talking. I didn't realize yeah. it was that that dangerous. We have a, a, a Wi-Fi switch in our house that we switch off, and the whole okay. house goes dead. So at eleven o'clock or ten thirty, you know, the kids are like, "What's going on?" We have six children, so everybody wants their Wi-Fi, but we flip it off, and it's off for the night while we're sleeping. Uh, what do you think about just turning off location services while you're carrying your phone around? At least it's not a satellite receiver. Would that have an impact, or is it negligible? Well. Let me answer that and jump right back in, which I th you, you said something that I really want to focus on, which, I th which is really important. So, yes, you should not have location services on unless you're trying to hail an Uber or a Lyft or it's the only time I turn mine on or um, Bluetooth. Same thing. No Bluetooth, <laughs> no location services, no wa no Wi-Fi, no airplane mode, all three of those. You know, Bluetooth battery, in the car is bad, right? Well, it depends on what you drive. Uh Ideal, yeah, ideally you don't, you don't want any of this. I mean, that's it, and it depends on the type of Bluetooth. There's multiple types. The newest renditions are low power Bluetooth, which is like 95% lower energy, so it's less danger, mm -hmm. but still an issue. So let's get back to what you said. You're very, you're obviously a very responsible parent and astute and unaware of these dangers, and you, like I was doing, was turning my Wi-Fi off at night. And is that a good strategy? Absolutely. Should you do that? Yes. But John, you are stopping far too short. Now, okay. clearly the most important time to, to minimize your exposure to EMFs is while you're sleeping. Why? Because sleep is probably the one of the most important biological functions we have. Clearly far more important than exercise. And I believe probably more important than the diet, the food choices you make. You got to sleep well. If you're not sleeping well, you get perfect exercise, perfect diet. You will die prematurely guaranteed. No and question. Remember Russ Ryder, the author of the book Melatonin back in the sure. 70s? Yeah, he, I, talked I, I, about, he talked about the impact of EMFs on melatonin production way, way yes. back then. And, and now it's only more, you know, more realistic. So it's we really worse. haven't. Yes. Yeah, I'll, I'll get to the details because I think that's what I, that's the take home message I want to give to you and your listeners is to focus on how you improve your sleep through limiting EMF exposure. But one of them is clearly turn your Wi-Fi off, Wi-Fi off and off. But I would challenge you, John, and I know you can do it. And in a year or two, I want you to send me an email and tell me you've done it is to put your house to wire, convert it to wire and eliminate, eliminate the Wi-Fi signal. You know, I, the, the, the experts in this field that help people remediate the, 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 the Wi-Fi or the Wi-Fi, but the EMF exposure they have in their homes uh, are building biologists. And they consistently tell me that most people believe that all the EMF in their house is coming from the outside in the cell phone towers or neighbor's Wi-Fi. That's not true. In almost every right. case they find it's the it's coming from inside the house. So you can change it, which is great. And so one of the biggest ones is turn your Wi-Fi off. It's another important thing is to remember that. Smart is a code word, just like diet or no sugar is a code word, meaning artificial sweeteners, right? Right. 
So is natural. Natural means stay away from it because they bastardize the term. But essentially, smart is code word for wireless. So here's something that most people don't understand. Almost all TVs and actually almost all new thermostats are now smart. What does that mean? It means that the moment you turn your TV on, your smart TV, it is emitting a Wi-Fi signal. And unlike your computer, your desktop or your notebook, which you have the ability to turn into airplane mode, you cannot do that with your smart TV. You cannot do it. So every time you're watching TV, you are getting blasted by Wi-Fi. Guaranteed. Even even if it's Ethernet wired. Yes, because it's broadcasting this signal that you cannot turn off. And you don't have to believe me. You can get relatively inexpensive devices. My favorite is Acoustometer 2. Acoustometer 2, available on a very obscure, hard-to-find website called Amazon. And you can measure it, and you will find out. Um, And I use this device to essentially get my home close to zero or essentially very low level, below 0.01 volts per meter, which is a pretty- Is that the same as a gasometer? Because I have one of those. Oh, no, the no, same no. Thing? no, okay. no, no, they're not. This is measuring radio frequency fields. Gauss okay. meters would be measuring a magnetic field. Magnetic fields are important too. And then there's an electric field. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's jump to the electric fields now because the most important thing that you can do, I mean, obviously switch- Turn your Wi-Fi, convert to that. No smart TVs. You, so we don't want to watch TV. Well, get a computer monitor. Get a big, giant computer monitor and watch that because those are not producing Wi-Fi signals. Okay. Um, but w- the, probably the single most important thing you can do, and this is confirmed by the building biologist that I've consulted with, is to turn off the electricity to your bedroom at night and your kids' rooms. before you. So while you're sleeping, because the moment you do that – the electrical fields usually go down to zero unless your room is adjacent to another room that has wires going. Because it's the wires in the wall that are essentially in Romex or cabling that is then they're not metal uh, pipes that don't that cancel out the fields. In Chicago and New York, they are because of corrupted uh, trade union workers there that. 100 years ago, changed the code for residences to do that. And thankfully, I grew up in Chicago and I had no idea. They didn't do it for biological health reasons. They did it to increase their revenues. But the side effect, the artifact of that is it radically reduced EMF and electric fields in the bedroom. And I got to grow up for over 50 years not being ex- being exposed to relatively small electric fields while I slept at night, which is great. You mean the wires were in, in metal casings? or They were in metal pipes by code in, in New York for residences in New York and wow. Uh, Chicago, the only cities I'm aware of that this is the case. So, but most of us don't have. Now, that code is is also true for commercial buildings like hotels. So when you and I travel, all or anyone else, all we have to do is when we go to a hotel to reduce our electric field exposure is to pull the cord out of every outlet. Because as soon as you plug that cord in, that cord is not shielded and electric fields will be brought into the room and you'll be exposed to them. It'll go up like crazy. But you all have to do is pull them out. You can't do that in your home unless you live in Chicago or New York, though. you got to turn it off. And there is a place called Safe Living Technologies, SLT.co, where you can go and get a remote shutoff co- um, that costs about $400 and maybe another 100 or 200 to for an electrician to put it in. So if you've got, like, if you, I don't know how many children you have, but if you have, say, you have four kids, you got yours or three kids, you could six. turn six kids. Well, say if you have, it will turn off four bedrooms. So oh, nice. it'll turn on four circuits when you press the button. And and I think each of those rooms has their own individual control. So that makes it even nicer. And that, 
takes care of the Wi-Fi too, right? Because I'll just no, no, the Wi-Fi. No, the hopefully you you structured this your house, and that's going to be kind of pricey because you got to get a lot of wires and Ethernet adapters for your notebooks and tablets. Don't worry. I mean, Android tablets would work. You can get a wired connection, but Apple tablets, iPads are very, very difficult to hook up to a wire. I mean, it's complex. They have, you have to have three devices to do it and they all have to be Apple certified. Otherwise it won't work. And it's just a night. I mean, you got to, it's just a nightmare. You got to, you still have to plug into the wall with a, with an electric cord to do it because you have to have a powered USB uh, adapter and a non-powered one won't work. So it's just, it's just a mess. It, iPads, do you think they know? And do you think Apple knows what they're doing? Do they know? Do they look at the research? I mean, this is their, this is their business. Do they just ignore all that? It's idle speculation on my part, and I don't know. It's just a wild guess. My guess is they don't. I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt because they're busy with what they do. They're not biologists. They're not health people. Even the health people like you and me, I mean, we're obscure to it. So why should they be responsible? No, I don't think there's a massive conspiracy out there. I think they're trusting the federal regulatory authorities to do their job. And, of course, they're not. They're totally conflicted and corrupted. And as a result, they're just – they're, they're not doing anything illegal. I right. mean, they got caught a while ago. I mean, these electric fields, if you know, on an Apple, because they had the two-prong adapter. Oh, my God. If you have a two-prong adapter for your – get rid of it immediately. I mean, if you measure the electric fields on that, it, anything over 10 is a problem. Those are hundreds, 600, 1,000. It's crazy. And if you're close to it, you're just damaging your cells all day long. Wow. So it's, 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 Incredible. they're getting this from multiple fields. You got magnetic fields, electric fields, and radio frequency fields. And, and they each have, typically you need a, a different device to measure each one of those fields. Wow. And so most of this is inside the home. If you live in a city mm-hmm. with That's good news. around you, it doesn't really matter that much. If you live out, it, the difference between well, it's that gotta be and harder in the country. With, with the density of people, because you got more Wi-Fi routers, you know, your neighbors above, below, and on either side of you. Yeah, it's, it's the yeah. more rural you go, the the easier it is. Uh, and also, just the building itself will block many of the signals. Like Lily's, as I step outside my home, the, my signals go up ten to a hundred times. My home is protecting me. Now, windows the, is relatively transparent to seek signals, but you can put coatings over that to reduce it. But, um, you know, then you're getting into fine tuning. But you pick up that meter and you know. And actually, this is how I found out, John, that I have my cell phone on, right? I, I remediate all the things, got rid of my wireless mouse, my wireless keyboard, um, turned everything. You know, I, my desktop was plugged into Ethernet like you th- suggested, but the Wi-Fi was still on. It was radiating the heck out of me. I had no idea. Right. So I'm measuring the things and I thought I thought my it was still high. I thought my neighbor's Wi-Fi darn it, the cell phone. And what I realized was. It was my cell phone was on. I wasn't talking. It was merely on, not in airplane mode. And it was six feet away from me. But I found out that if, from, it, that those signals tra- could be measured, easily measured be, by 30 feet, 30 feet. So not only forget on your body, I'm talking in the same room with you. It's got to be like two rooms away. That's why airplane mode is the easiest. As long as you're in airplane mode, and you don't have location services or Bluetooth inactivated, then you're pretty much okay. But I take it the next step. I get a, a Faraday bag, and I put my phone in that, and I put that in my pocket when I walk on the beach because I always walk with that for uh, my phone because I like to take notes on it, um, and uh, I may may need it for emergency. You know, I might have to for whatever reason. But it's all I, I always have it in a Faraday bag because nothing gets through. 
So I was using a Gaussometer for years, and you know that's way less sensitive than what you're talking about. Help, tell us what that meter is again that you're using, so people can hear that again. Well, it's it's acoustometer, like acoustic, a c o u s t i c, and then meter, all one word, and then two. And it's about $150 on Amazon. And it's really a nice device. It actually is an you press the button twice, and you'll actually hear a sound signal, which will the, the it's an analog. Uh, sound, so it it's represents the signal that it's receiving. So a Wi-Fi router is a very specific type of sound. A cell phone tower is another sound, um, and other types of Bluetooth signals have yet a different types. So there's probably a dozen or twenty or two dozen different types of sounds, and they've got recordings of these, so you can listen to the sounds, find out what you're listening to. Sometimes it's a, a variety of different sounds, so it's difficult to pick it up, but a lot of yeah. times you'll be able to, to find it. And then it, then it will have a the, the lights will vary from green to uh, yellow to orange to red. And obviously the red is a danger zone. And you want to be in the green or maybe not even show any green. So this was where I sleep at night, is, which is yeah. below 0. 0.001 volts per meter, which is a biologically safe zone. Wow, beautiful. Dr. McCullough, I can't tell you how grateful I am. And I'm sure all the listeners too. You're a wealth of information constantly on the cutting edge. I know you, you say you're OCD. I just think you're passionate. And, uh, and, <laughs> well, and, thank uh, you. And, uh, I'm really grateful to have known you. We met in India years ago and, and, uh, that changed my life. Um, just meeting you and, and, uh, hearing from you. I'm glad one quick story. You, after I lectured one day, you looked at me and you said, John, why are you seeing patients still? And, uh, you said, you should do what I do. You should, you should, you know, teach online. And, 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 uh, I had already had a website and, and newsletters and putting it out there, but, uh, you definitely affirmed for me a direction to stop, you know, I still see patients. I still see them one on one, but mm -hmm. these messages need to get out in a bigger way and we can reach so many more people, change so many more lives as you have done in such a massive way. So I just want to thank you officially oh, for welcome. every, everything that you're doing and, uh, and how you've inspired me and I'm sure millions of others. So well, again, let, thank you. Let me just share an anecdote with you because I've been doing it a little bit longer than you have been. My website's been around for 20 years and a lot of these seeds that you are planting now, they will not ripen. You will not be in harvest mode for many years, sometimes more than 10 years, maybe even 20. But when you go around a lecture like I do and you get to talk to people afterwards, I mean, it is the most enormous satisfaction to hear these stories and i mean it brings you to tears how you're yeah. changing people's lives and you can totally do it the problem is is that you you don't see it like you do when you're seeing your patients but it's the same type of reward that you get the same type of gratitude so it's just enormously magnificent and you know because we've been i've been doing it for so long i mean i've actually i mean i thought it would be great to treat to help a million people but I, we probably have helped more than 100 million people now worldwide which is just profound it's it's almost unimaginable but and, and it gives me great hope to know that we can teach people to take control of their health and, and escape the damage the corruption and the confliction that all these in, the industry is doing to to essentially devastate our health and they, they don't have to they don't have to uh, suffer from that they can they, there are simple strategies they can implement yeah well you know, we are, we are in our infancy, but we do have over six million views on YouTube. And I think, you know, when this message gets out, what you're doing here today in this lecture, I, I just think people are going to be so grateful to hear your take on ketogenics because there's so much out there that's sort of very, very extreme and potentially dangerous. And also being on the cutting edge of the ENF thing woke me up. I got to go back and change a few things. And uh, I hope many, many well, we all others do. will. 
don't feel bad. I mean, I, I just didn't understand this until this year, literally six yeah. months ago. You know, yeah. I was just, I was arrogantly ignorant, you know, thought I, I was deluded, misinformed, and, and I thought I was biologically immune somehow, but it wasn't the case. Yeah, so, sometimes you just think that these cell phone companies are, 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 they understand all this and they're dialing down the EMFs and they're, they're protecting us. And obviously that's not true at all. No, no. Yeah. All right. So there's right. a lot more. We just scratched the surface. Believe me. I know it seemed like a lot, but it's, it's a tiny fraction of what you need to know. So that's why I'm writing the book. I love it. Can't wait to see it. Hopefully when the book comes out, we can have you back and, uh, and talk again. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Thank you. Hi. Did you like this video? Do you like our content here at Life Spa? You can subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash John DeYard right here and get this valuable content every week in your inbox. This recording is brought to you by Life Spa, where ancient Ayurvedic wisdom meets modern science. Get access to free health video newsletters by Dr. John at lifespa.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.